Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke to Bob Roth. Bob Roth is the CEO of the David Lynch Foundation. He's taught transcendental meditation for thousands of people all over the world, two thousands of people over the world for nearly 50 years. The David Lynch Foundation has launched a new global initiative, Heal the Healers Now! Bring transcendental meditation for free to doctors, nurses and other healthcare providers who are on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic. What a lovely thing to do. Bob is also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Strength in Stillness, Power of Transcendental Meditation, that's a subtitle, and host of the new podcast, Stay Calm with Bob Roth, which he talks about in the podcast. Bob Roth's been a friend of mine for a long time. He taught me to meditate. He's a beautiful man. He's... Uh, it's one of the first times I sort of encountered the idea of, well, I was going to say like a secular priest, but he's not secular because he's devoted. He's a devotee, but in a very unfussy, accessible, academically underwritten, beautiful, loving way. He's a friend of mine, a teacher of mine. I adore him. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. If you're into my stuff, sign up for my mailing list. Go russellbrand.com now. Sign up for it. You get like lovely little free videos. And look at my YouTube channel for videos and stuff. I mean, look, you probably know all this already, don't you? You've, it's part of a small little elite of people that are listening to Under the Skin. I would call you a, a cell, a cabal a cadre of uh, high-minded pioneers out on the frontiers of new consciousness. Let's get into Under the Skin with Bobby Roth. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? Welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Bobby Roth, thank you for coming on Under the Skin. It's such a pleasure to finally have a conversation with you recorded in this f- format. It's wonderful to be here, Russell. Ah, Bob, you taught me how to meditate. Am I the best one? Oh, head and shoulders by <laughs> Russell. Never in the history of mankind, humankind, has anybody ever meditated as well as you did. I really, I, I really nailed it. Didn't I? Oh, okay, and every time, just perfection beyond. I hope that makes you feel good about yourself. Here, Bob, I'll start off then with the question that was on my mind. How do you reconcile the necessity to teach people meditation sometimes through the lens that if you meditate it will improve your ability to function in the world with something that continually recurs to me and has enhanced as a result of my own meditation that the the way that the world is needs urgent address I mean to say, you know, you tr- you've taught people to meditate that are CEOs, politicians, high-profile, powerful figures. Do you ever feel at odds with the sort of the way that meditation is presented as something that will improve the quality of your life and your ability to do to work in areas that perhaps in a, a more sane and let's say enlightened world might be foregone altogether? Well, I've taught many, many thousands of people to meditate over the past 50 years. Maybe a hundred of them have been CEOs. The rest have been regular folk like myself and the David Lynch Foundation. 
which I run, has brought the meditation to over a million kids, veterans, women who are survivors of domestic violence. So I, I, if, if the meditation was only for one demographic, that would be a horrible thing. But <clears throat> the idea is that on the level of human being, everyone can benefit from it. So we're doing everything we can to make it available to everyone. Yes. <clears throat> But, maybe I didn't. Maybe I didn't hear your question. Understand your question. No, no, no. I, I I know that it's not exclusively for them, but like part of the way that, and I, I don't mean specifically necessarily the David Lynch Foundation, but there is a tendency more broadly, say in the mindfulness movement, the well-being movement, personal development, to present these um, theologically underwritten ancient techniques in the context of their efficacy in rather more modern constructs i.e to simplify it meditate and you will become more successful meditate and you that kind of thing that i don't like i mean well i can't say i don't like the fact of the matter is uh, transcendental meditation goes back over 5,000 years. It's been available and, and lost and available and lost and it always has to meditation always has to be taught in the language of the time uh, in the vocabulary of the time and the need of the time otherwise it becomes obscure and uh, irrelevant so the beautiful thing about real accurate true meditation is it has there's no division between spirituality and consciousness between mental clarity between physical health between self-awareness it's one continuum there's not a there's not a barrier between the mind and the body and the heart and spiritual aspirations are all connected. So if you have a meditation practice that addresses one thing, it's going to address all things simultaneously. That said, if you have a meditation practice going to say, you do this mindfulness thing, and then you're going to be, you're going to be more cutthroat in the marketplace. Well, I question the validity of that particular type of meditation that would be so selective. Uh, it's not holistic. You pull one leg on a, on a chair and all the other legs come. If you start to meditate and transcend for the purpose of um, maybe you have high blood pressure, you have migraine headaches. Well, you're also going to wake up the, the prefrontal cortex, which is your, the part of the brain that is associated with your sense of self, your spiritual self. So it's all one thing. Yeah, right. I see you dispute that there are all these divisions and, and you think just, just by teaching people to meditate, they will, this discover organically yeah i mean maharishi mahesh yogi who introduced tm said a person learning to start to learning to meditate because they have high blood pressure is just a back door to enlightenment everything is going to come all the benefits will come so whatever the reason is it's hard to talk to a person about enlightenment if they have migraine headaches so they learn to transcend their headaches go, and at the same time, all the other qualities of the brain, all the other qualities of the heart, all the qualities of emotion also unfold and flourish at the same time. Why, why do you think that is? Why does meditation change people? Well, again, you know, we have to be careful. Meditation writ large, you can't say all meditations are the same, like you can't say all medicines are the same, all vitamins are the same. So there are different approaches according to science. There's three basic types of meditation. One is called focused attention, which is a concentration form of meditation. Another is called open monitoring. That's many mindfulness techniques. And then the third is self-transcending. And if you want, I can go a little bit into each one of those. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. So the analogy that I use, and I've told you many times, is of the ocean. You're on a little boat and you're in the middle of the, the ocean and all of a sudden you get these giant 30, 40, 50 foot high waves. And you could think the whole ocean is an upheaval. But actually, if you did a cross section, you'd realize the ocean is well over you know, miles deep. And while the nature of the ocean may be turbulent on the surface, the nature of the ocean at, the, at its depth is pretty darn silent. So according to, you know, you could say the mind is similar. The surface of our mind, is, is this interesting to you? Yeah, really, everything you say is interesting. <laughs> so, so the surface of the mind, the choppy, tsunami-esque, some traditions call that the monkey mind. And the monkey, monkey, the monkey is just wandering all over the place, jump, and you have to stop it. You have to corral it. The nature of the mind is to wander. You have to stop it. I like to call it the gotta, 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 gotta mind. I got to do this and I got to do that. I got to call him and I got to call her and I got to make a list. I got to find the list. Got to slow down. Got all the goddess. And it's a natural human desire. Everyone. I don't care where you live, what you're religious or philosophical or economic. I'd like to have some inner calm, some inner clarity, some inner equanimity. And the operative word there is inner. And the question is, is there such a thing as an inner? And if so, how do you get there? And now, Russell, I'm getting to your question on meditation. And those three types. Three types. And, and it, it, the first type is called focused attention. And focused attention says, if you, using the ocean analogy, if you want to have a calm ocean, what is a disruptor of calm? Waves. So, so stop the waves and then you'll have a calm ocean. If you want to have a calm mind, what disrupts a calm mind? Thought. Stop thought. So focused attention, Vipassana is one of these, where you just concentrate and focus on a point in your body, on an emotion, on a thought. When you do that, it creates something called gamma brain waves, which are 20 to 50 cycles per second. Your brain working hard. The second approach open is called open monitoring open monitoring is many mindfulness techniques as i said that says thoughts are not necessarily the disruptor of calm but the content of thoughts can be the disruptor of calm so if i have a thought about a guy named joe and i don't know anybody named joe eh. but if i have a thought about a guy named joe and 10 years ago joe done me wrong so open monitoring teaches me to dispassionately observe my thoughts, my moves, my, be in the present, be mindful, don't be in the past. When you do that, it creates theta brainwaves. TM, transcendental meditation, is a third type. And that's self-transcending. And that says thoughts are fine. The ocean is fine. Waves on the ocean are fine. Where's the ocean naturally calm? At its depth. Where's the mind naturally calm? We hypothesize deep within everyone is a transcendent level of the mind, which is always and already calm. And this meditation gives access to that. What's the basis? Oh, that's a good answer. What's the basis of that hypothesis that there is calmness at depth? And is there also a scholastic write-in that supports the idea of these three types of meditation in addition to the scientific analysis? Yes, um, the first question, the hypothesis, what's, what's the, what's the, how can we make that assumption? Well, we already know that there's a vertical direct dimension to the mind. We feel things deeply. We love deeply. We hurt deeply. You have an intuition. Russell, someone comes to you and they want to pitch a, a, an, a television idea and it makes perfectly good sense on the surface. But then uh, somewhere afterwards when you're just sort of 
by yourself thinking deeply, your intuition says, I don't think so, Jack. That feeling level, quiet feeling level. So the hypothesis is even deeper than that, far deeper than that, is a level where your mind is already always calm and settled and peaceful and alert. And people have been talking about this for eons. True happiness lies within. Um, the kingdom of heaven is within Lao Tzu. Actually, the Old Testament, Isaiah 42 says, be still and know that I am God. Einstein wrote about this. So it's a, a transcendent experience common throughout time. It just has been too rare. You think deep within our individual nature, and maybe we can assume our collective nature is a, a peace that surpasses all understanding and that through TM we can access it. Yes. Um, it's, it, again, it's throughout, it, throughout time. The idea is that the deepest level of my nature is an interface with the deepest level of nature's nature. I mean, you've had people talk about this, the idea of, in physics, the idea of a unified field, of an underlying field that is the foundation of all matter and force fields in the universe. Einstein was looking at the end of his life to, to unify all the fundamental force fields in, in nature, and he called it a unified field. Well, in the ancient meditation texts, they talk basically about a unified field of consciousness. From the standpoint of physics, one could never access that field. There's, you could never have a linear accelerator large enough to be able to access that, like there are instrumentation to access the fields of electromagnetism. That's why we're communicating. So, or the field of gravity. So the ancient texts would say, yeah, but the human brain, the human nervous system is that instrument in nature that could access that field at that transcendent quietest level. So the deepest level of my own nature and the deepest level of your nature and the deepest level of nature's nature, one and the same. And when I access that, then it enlivens all the qualities. I like to say all the sort of the best qualities of life. It, it reduces stress, but more than that, it wakes up compassion, kindness, insight, uh, power, strength, discernment, all the sort of the higher values of human life has been talked about forever. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is within you. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and all else will be added unto thee. That's the language of religion, but you can have the same language in, in poetry, in arts, in science, anywhere. Do you think that human beings, even prior to uh, civilization, would have sought out these kind of states you, you know like a hundred thousand years ago when we're living hunter-gatherer lifestyles lifestyles it might have been just naturally accessible the thing is is it might not have been that we had to carve out time in order to do that we might have been so in tune with nature with the flow in the in the uh, seasons and the sunlight, everything that we might have just naturally lived that there is, and you and I have talked about this in the in the Bhagavad Gita and also the um, which is the Vedic text, and also even in the Hopi Indians where they talk about four ages, Kali Yuga is the dark age all the way up to the. This is just philosophical, but then you have the Satyuga, which is the golden age. And they say there have been times in society where naturally human beings lived in sort of in accordance with the laws of nature. 
and we're now in Kali Yuga. And that would be like the full sunshine of the day, like noonday sun. <laughs> Surprise, we, we would be, according to the text, in Kali Yuga, which is a dark time where the light has to come from inside and not outside. And I think that's why there's so much interest now in meditation, because people are looking for stability, they're looking for something true, and they're not finding it in the outside world, so it's driving them inside. Do you think this darkness can be understood as a kind of fixation with the grosser uh, elemental material existence and inability to see the depth of potential experience? Yes, I think it's because, see, the thing is, is this is a, a sort of a bigger point, if I can just go back. So you, earlier I talked about how there's cert, certain meditation traditions say that the the mind is a monkey, monkey mind, and you have to corral it. You have to stop the mind from wandering. You have to focus it and, and you know, be task positive. On Well, Maharishi's insight, and he didn't say it was original from times past, is that the nature of the mind is not to wander aimlessly, and I'm going to answer your question in a moment. The nature of the mind, at its core, the mind seeks happiness, seeks love, seeks beauty, seeks pleasure, seeks delicious but we but the nature of the senses are they draw us out to find that we're drawn out through our senses oh that uh sexual experience is going to make me happy that job is going to make me that that flashy new car as you were saying all this objective material stuff on the outside we get lured but of course it doesn't it, it doesn't and um we just take that same desire for more happiness that the mind is we're built for that more instead of trying to stop it instead of trying to suppress it give the attention of the mind an inward direction and then through the use of a mantra we just are drawn inward use because deeper levels are increasingly more satisfying so the mind wants happiness it's just drawn inward now to fully answer your question yeah the desire for happiness we've been fooled you talk about this all the time Oh, you know, the outer glitz, the outer materialism. But it's, it ultimately is vacuous and empty and deadly. And people still want that happiness. So as you said, what do they do? You should talk about what, you know, substance use disorder. What, what is the addict looking for? This is your time to answer that question. I was thinking about Bobby when you were saying seeks, you know, the mind seeks happiness. What is the energetic or essential quality of to seek a movement towards an impulse an urge a desire for union for oneness a return to this um subliminal unified field a deep understanding that separation is temporary and illusory and that on some level intuitively we recognize that our, the, our primary existence is one of unity not one of separation and we can feel therefore a kind of magnetic pull not a desire of one separate object heading towards another separate object but the kind of filaments pulling back a sort of a reverse big bang a re-centralizing a return to singularity in more simple and personal terms and and from a 12-step perspective it's understood uh, that the addict or alcoholic is looking for a spiritual experience the 12th step is having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps uh, we you know, help addicts elsewhere etc 
um, and carried a message. But like, if the solution is to have a spiritual experience, then the problem is a lack of spiritual experience. My own personal addiction and alcoholism, I would never have recognized it as such at the time, nor is it ob nor is it evident, although it is obvious that any substance use is a spiritual pursuit because you're doing it in order to feel better. You're trying to mediate, medicate, negotiate with your inner life. So, uh, yeah, I would say that addicts and alcoholics are looking for a sense of wholeness, holiness, contentment, connection. And, and I think that addicts and alcoholics in particular are unable to find it through the prescribed material means of success or, you know, sex or whatever. There's a wonderful, it's absolutely your, whenever we've spoken together and you, you say those words, it resonates with people because absolutely that's the case. There's a looking for a union. And I would say that union will never be fulfilled until you, you uh, connect with your own higher self or your own deeper self. And I don't use that in a woo-woo language or anything because when you experience that i need to make this point it has an influence from the deepest level of consciousness all the way up to the way your amygdala functions and your prefrontal cortex functions there's no separation it's a continuum and um yeah i i i think that the does oh i know what i want to tell you so um <clears throat> talking about the lure outside of what's going to make me happy. So again, in some of the ancient texts, they talk about how there's these five gates to hell um, outer, which means the, uh, the Maya or the illusion that, Oh, if I get this, it's going to make me happy because it's intoxicating. And those five gates to hell, they say are um, beauty, fame, power, wealth, and pleasure, beauty, fame. So a person, oh, if I could just be beautiful like that model, or if I could be as powerful or as famous as that person, and we, and it's intoxicating, and we go that way. And Russell, you see, some of the wealthiest people in the world are the most unhappy, unhappiest people in the world. There's a huge problem of addiction in the fashion industry. So I say that point because when Maharishi first came to the United States in 1959. He was in Los Angeles and someone said, oh, you should go give a talk in Las Vegas. So we went to Las Vegas and one evening there were older people. They, he didn't know. He came from a, basically a small town in India and um, they were driving around one evening in Las Vegas. <clears throat> and afterwards, someone said to him, <clears throat> Maharishi, what did you think? And he smiled and he said, in Las Vegas, the gates to hell are well lit. So... <laughs> So just the point is, that's never going to do it. That's never going to do it. We've got a culture that's sort of built around those five pillars or gateways that, um, in a sense, deifies them and the, uh, kind of economizes them. And um, Bobby, uh, Maharishi, some people may not know, is the most famous to most people, which I suppose is the nature of fame, but because he taught the Beatles how to meditate. You spent a lot of time with him, and tell me what your experiences with the Maharishi were like, from your first impressions to your ongoing, well, it seems to me like devotion and love. 
I started meditating on uh, in Ju- when did I teach you in September twenty two oh seven? Yeah, I, maybe slightly. Yeah, around then. Yeah, so yeah, thirteen years. Yeah. So I started meditating uh, between my freshman and sophomore years at the University of California at Berkeley. I started meditating on June twenty eighth, nineteen sixty nine, and. Um, I really enjoyed my first experience. Unusual for me to have learned to meditate because at that time there was a lot of sort of craziness going on and I'm not in, I wasn't into sort of gurus and I'm not, and I still am not, and I'm not into, but the experience was, I didn't have to believe anything. And the experience was so satisfying that I thought, oh, this is something real. A year later, I was at Humboldt State College in 1970 with about 2000 other uh, university students for a graduate level program with him on consciousness. And I was so impressed, Russell, it, on the dais with him with Buckminster Fuller, uh, two Nobel laureates in physics. There was a, someone else on the dais who was a rabbi, someone else who was an imam. And they were all talking about the search for reality, the search for truth. Same reality, same search, just in different vocabulary. And he was in the middle of that discussion. He was sort of moderating that discussion. And his background was a physicist. He was a physicist. So in India, he studied with the top physicists in India, became a physicist, said, okay, I got what I got from physics. Then he spent 13 years with his teacher, Gurudev, who was a top, you could say, scientist of consciousness. And then after he, after his teacher died, he spent two years in silence, and then he traveled around the world teaching transcendental meditation. That evening, that first meeting with all those people on the stage, I had this experience, Russell, of this is a timeless moment. This could have been during the times of Socrates or Plato or Lao Tzu or any thinkers who are gathering together, put dogma aside, put all philosophy aside, and let's just search for meaning and truth. So my relationship with Maharshi over 40, 50 years was one of, he's like a a teacher, I didn't go to him and say, tell me how to live my life. Um, my uh, devotion to him is the same devotion you would have to a, a you could, bigger than this, but a friend. You know, you're devoted to, to your wife or to a friend because uh, they're truthful. So I was very fortunate to work over many, many years with him and around him. I, I can share some, you know, some great stories. Uh, just little pithy comments, he said, but just he was like a you could say a a, a professor, a, but a, the dimension of spirituality or consciousness, but not of a religious nature. Um, <clears throat> I went in uh, the famous classic autobiography of a yogi, a yogi when um, Yogananda meets his teacher, who I know you'll remember the name, and I've forgotten. Like he, like the love, the expression. I remember Yukteswar. Yukteswar, I think it was. I was sort of, um, thank you, taken aback by how explicit, overt, and to a, a Western-educated person, romantic even, his feelings of love were. And uh, I've subsequently begun to consider this, you know, love for the guru, love for the teachers, uh, like a significant and important idea in that I understand that within that relationship is the acceptance that it's not about the individual rather the fact that there's a sort of a conveyance and transmission of this divine truth that you say was you felt was being discussed in this contemporary symposium that you attended when you first encountered the Maharishi and so 
Firstly, do you have anything to say about the nature of that love and, and how, how sort of some of those principles of devotion and that kind of rather unabashed idea about love, how does that, uh, how does that play to a sort of a occidental, shall we say, occidental, like a kind of audience, Western folk? And uh, also how... Uh, that this idea of a search for a truth, that's something that sort of from post-modernity onwards has been sort of really sort of challenged, the idea that there's anything other than a subjective experience and that there is a universal truth that undergirds our reality. Um, I spent some time in India and just there, there's a much, it's almost disarming where, you know, uh, men, boys holding hands, walking together, girls holding hands all together. There's much less of this sort of like, uh, awkwardness or uh, it's just a it's a natural flow so I think that there's maybe that expression of a love that uh, Yogananda had for Sri Yukteswar as his master I think there's there's a comfort in his own who he is so I don't think it sort of necessarily would border over into something that we might think would be inappropriate my relationship with Maharshi was just um just a deep love and appreciation uh, and uh, uh, a, a guide. And um, he, you know, there's been a lot of people over the years who've said, oh, Maharishi this or, or the TM movement that. And I've been on the front lines of all of that, um, <clears throat> looking into questions and accusations and challenges. Oh, the Beatles left Maharishi in 1968 because of this or John Lennon. Well, John Lennon, meditated the whole rest of his life. I taught uh, John's son, Sean Lennon, to meditate. And I asked Sean why, this was several years ago, I said, why did he want to learn to meditate? He said, because my dad, uh, John, and my mom, Yoko, used to meditate together. This was into the, you know, 70s, 80s. So I never found anything in Maharshi, his teaching, the way he lived his life, to be other than anything impeccable. And so my relationship with him has been, and is same now, just someone who is deeply embedded as a, as a figure of truth. And for me, most important thing in my life is truth. Just that being true to myself, to answer your other question. Truth is relative. I mean, everybody has their own truth on the relative level. There's no absolute truth on the relative level of existence of the waves. Again, it's the hypothesis that that level of the unified field or that unified field of consciousness, that is in a field of absolute immutable truth. That is from where every, all the relative um, experiences and forms and phenomena manifest. So if you could access that level, then you're sort of at that core, that central switchboard of everything that's going to express itself. But, you know, it's a philosophical discussion. I don't spend too much time on it personally. I just, um, I try to be true to myself, do what I know to be right, don't do what I know to be wrong, and make a difference in the world. When you're dealing as you are with the transcendent of, as you know, a, like I was listening to Joe Rogan when he had Brian uh, Grazier on and like when Brunk sort of went oh my meditation teaches Bob Roth I was like oh wow you know like sort of so you're at kind of a, a, 
a summit of a land that acknowledges that peaks and troughs and highs and lows are illusory and, ten- and, and temporary. Um, like, how do you tackle the challenge of dealing with ideas that are not only beyond language, but perhaps even beyond phenomena, when these ideas have to be communicated? How do we, and and how do you tackle the sort of reductivism and oversimplification that necessarily accompanies that? That when you are, when we're talking about a, um, you know, a transcendent realm, accessing a transcendent realm, a deep, absolute truth, that's, in a way the same as talking about god isn't it and how do you and what are the challenges of talking about that in a world whose values have deviated from and are sometimes in opposition to ideas such as those because i think the lack of experience of that has given direct experience has given rise to this all this intellectual construct around it for example Um, It's very complicated to understand the chemistry, the biology of a strawberry. I mean, it's so complicated, the cells, the molecules, the this, the And understanding it will never give you the taste. The taste of a strawberry is very simple. Pick up a strawberry, you taste it. Great, simple experience, sweet, delicious, lovely. So there's this whole construct about God and consciousness and um, physics and this and that, and it's all fine. It's great. It's an intellectual gyration, but it turns out, it turns out that the experience of that field can be quite simple. The experience of that field can be quite charming. That's what I was talking about, that the nature of the mind to seek or be drawn or or like gravity towards, towards that something more satisfying. So you close your eyes and you do this transcending and your mind is just drawn towards that. So it's, a, it's like a dichotomy. The experience is simple. The understanding of it is completely, uh, you know, intricate and con- an infinite amount of knowledge about that strawberry. You could devote your whole life to studying about it. Um, <clears throat> so for me, who's kind of just a uh, see, see, just my focus is on that experience. Give people the experience. Once you have the experience, then it will all work itself out. I think one of the problems with religion these days is they've lost the experience. It's become a dogma, it's the do's and don'ts, you should do this, you can't do that, we're better than you, because they've lost the experience of that. Give the experience, then things have meaning and balance and relevance. With some of the ideologies that have replaced religion as the sort of centrifugal force in systems of dominance e.g in secular society say the state and ideologically and philosophically post the enlightenment um rationalism a kind of devotion to the breaking down and understanding of you know the the molecular truth of a strawberry as opposed to the experience of a strawberry which can never be iterated rendered or conveyed do you um that question was going so well bob that i actually kicked myself over into another dimension temporarily (laughs) I sort of sung myself into a new state just through the composition of my own question pivot and ask me what my favorite color is no way (laughs) I mean uh, how could we even agree that there's such a thing as color at this point (laughs) ultimately there is no The, the term if I may go off on something the term Maya 
uh, which means illusion, which means that which does not exist. It never, it's, it never existed anyway. And so from the ultimate perspective of the unified field, there is no color, there is no shape, there is no form, there's no phenomenon. It's just there, there's the point value, there's the, you know, the idea of the wave or the point, and so the particle, particle physics, wave physics. So there, from that unified field perspective, there is no color, there is no time space. But that's just a construct. You can't live your life pretending. So again, mm -hmm. the value of direct experience, close the eyes, transcend, access that field. And from that field of your own consciousness, it's your own consciousness. This isn't somebody else's, this isn't something bigger, divine, different, your own consciousness. Then you can start seeing life in reality because waking state of consciousness this is just, am I in a good mood? Am I in a bad mood? Am I sleepy? Do I have a, you know, a, a telescope, not a telescope? When someone says, I only believe what I see, I think, well, that's kind of crazy. I spoke to a neuroscientist the other week, Bob, and uh, David Eagleman, he's a very brilliant man. He said um, that from a neuroscientific perspective, it doesn't matter what sense is going into the brain registers the way that the only way that they can register it it's the same whether it's someone's listening to something seeing something like it they sort of don't understand the various ways that it's transposed well yeah i guess ultimate must be that way but there is part of the brain the occipital lobe where sight comes in and there's different temporal lobe different where different senses but i guess what he's saying is it all ends up in the same place yeah and it's not distinctive in terms of reading it through the lens that they currently have the best lens that they currently have and you could say that you could that the brain let's say you have you see something traumatic or you feel something traumatic or you hear something traumatic it still all comes in and uh, agitates arouses the amygdala which is your fight or flight response so ultimately all that sensory input can end up in either the pleasure center or the fear center. So yeah, I could understand that. How, what relationship do these ideas bear to the way that we organize our system? What are, what's the politics of transcendental meditation? Is there an end in mind? What does it, like it seems from what you're saying so far, and obviously from our conversations previously, that any practice that enhances compassion, unity, serenity, peace, a sense that material things are not the priority in the world would have a kind of an, uh, an ancillary presumed like political implication. How do you um, distinguish the, what you know uh, from uh, the, 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 the world as we experience it and is it difficult not to want to apply it to like say the political space well i think what you're saying is true but i also think <clears throat> that there's other things that the meditation does and uh, um and that is if i could talk for a moment about this whole field of creativity and problem solving in the brain is that okay yeah you can talk about what you want bob okay i'm going to talk about what all right when i was five years old let me just tell you when i um so this is because if you're if society has to move along, it can't just be oh I'm you know I'm passive and I'm I'm meditation transcendental meditation doesn't make one laid back and just sort of dismissive of things and actually it it 
fuels creativity. It fuels drive. It fuels a passion. It d- desires to grow and do more and to improve my relationships and all that stuff. But if you're talking about moving a society forward right now, particularly the 8 billion people, um, I think that society is going to move forward with uh, uh, creative ideas, cre- human creativity that's grounded in uh, a, a balanced, um, sort of an enlightened mind. And so I'll just talk for a second. I think this is so interesting about what's going on, the new knowledge about what happens in the brain with creativity. They used NTM, so that's a big picture to answer your question. So there's, um, they used to think, oh, Russell Brand is such a creative person. He's like a creative, and I'm not saying this. They did used to think that. No, no, that we used to think, you know, that we, no, we thought it was because he was a right brain person. So he's a right brain and that's spatial and intuitive and, and all of that. And a left brain person is a person who's analytical and the scientist, one is the artist, one is the scientist, left hemisphere, scientist, right hemisphere, artist. Well, it turns out that's not true. It turns out the creative process, and I'm giving this as a background foundation to answer your question. It turns mm-hmm. out the creative process is not registered in regions of the brain, the new understanding, it's a product of networks within the brain. And the two main networks for the creative process is the ability to focus and get stuff done. So Russell, you have some ideas for a show and they come up, but then you have to, or you're writing a book, you have to sit down and write that book. So that's the, called the, the executive control network or the attention network is in the front of the brain. And that's where your brain is working really hard. Now, the neuroscientists wanted to know, well, what is your brain doing when it's just resting, when it's not focused, when it's not task positive? And they said, they came up, what is it default to? So they came up with an interesting creative word. They called it the default mode network. (laughs) The default mode network, they were very dismissive for a long time. They said, that's just your brain wandering. Nothing really is happening there. And now they have two new names for the default mode network. Number one, the imagination network. And number two, the genius lounge. <laughs> I love it. And that is a network that's the ba- part of the brains that you're past, your back of the brain, middle of the brain, front of the brain, the genius lounge. And the creative process involves one, for most people, I have the good idea and then that shuts down and now I put pen to paper. I would say, and stress shuts down both. And I would say, Russell, without any undue flattery, because is that you are an expression, and there are others that I work with, of a unique, the research shows on the, uh, a new level of people where, where they found that people have both functioning simultaneously. It's not that one turns on and one turns off. It's the ability to innovate and focus at the same time. So when Russell does that, at least in the shows that I used to go to, when he would wander out into the, with a long cord out into the audience and sit on somebody's lap and then just take it from there. So that's the ability to innovate and focus. And that is the brain of a, that's a more hot, a more, the more creative people have their brains wired differently. All of this is to say, if we're going to solve problems of energy, healthcare, politics, come up with a political system that's fair, if we're going to come up with a healthcare system that's not just disease-oriented, but is prevention-oriented, if we're going to have an educational system that goes more along what um, Yates said, 
education should be not about filling a bucket. It should be about lighting a fire. Human beings are going to have to be less stressed and more creative. Cool. That was a cool answer. Also, during it, there was this, the well, not the implication, almost the explicit statement that I was a genius. And the, the latter part of what... Knows that, Russell. <laughs> Thank you. Laura told me to tell say that over and over and over again. I couldn't focus on the last bit because I was so happy with the phrase genius lounge lizard. (laughs) Not lizard, genius lounge. (laughs) Yeah, but I want to be a genius genius lounge lizard, like in a velvet jacket with no trousers and pants on, lounging in in the genius lounge. I've got a jacket on, no trousers and pants and a little curly slipper on the end of my legs. That's how I dress in the genius lounge. Um, but yes, Bobby Roth. Um, so thank you for explaining that. Now, like, here's another thing I need to know about. You know those, can you tell me a bit about uh, your and the David Lynch Foundations? I don't know, is it a belief or is it more than a belief that um, if enough people, a significant number of people began to meditate, it would change the world? And like about some studies that have shown the impact of uh, meditation, for example, on crime, the kind of, I suppose, practical consequences or results of meditation, I guess. Well, it's all based on that hypothesis that we are at our foundation, that there's a, that we're connected together. That's the hypothesis that every, that human consciousness, the mind at its deepest level, the deepest level of my nature, the deepest level of your, everyone's nature, that there's a unified field of consciousness that connects us together. If that's the case, then that field of consciousness which would be just as substantive as the field of gravity, although transcendent to that, then that field would function according to the same laws that other fields do, field effects of consciousness. For example, you can have in a room um, a, a large auditorium two loudspeakers and you can play one loudspeaker over on this corner of the room and you can play another loudspeaker in the other room corner of the room and they're as loud as two loudspeakers but you put them right next to each other field effects they're as loud as four loudspeakers so the square the amplitude squares three means nine ten means a hundred so if you could translate that and say okay, when we meditate, we're enlivening that underlying field. We're stirring that underlying field, connecting to that underlying field. And other people would do the same thing, then there would be a field effect. And then that positivity, that um, creativity, that peacefulness that exists down there would begin to manifest itself in our stressed, violent world. It's a big jump in logic to think that we're not just islands, but that we're connected together and that you could access that in meditation. But now to finish the point, there has been maybe 30 studies, largely ignored, unfortunately, but 30 studies published in peer-reviewed journals that showed when a small number of percentage of a population meditated together, that there were significant decreases in the sociological indicators of collective stress, uh, crime, sickness rates, war deaths, that somehow the group meditation had a, uh, a just a, a calming effect. It's not because the meditators are getting onto a bus and smiling at the bus driver and, oh, isn't happiness contagious? It's because there's a level that we interface that we can actually uh, 
reduce this, the stresses in the world. And to someone who says, well, that's just garbage, I would say, I would quote a Washington Post reporter who I spoke with who heard this whole thing and he said, I don't believe a word of it, but I've been a Washington Post reporter, bureau chief in Moscow for 10 years. And he said, I just pray that it could work because it, it doesn't, it, it's not limited by borders. It's not limited by economics or religion. It's just on that level of common field effects. And the David Lynch Foundation, along with the TM organization, is working to establish groups of uh, advanced meditators who could produce this effect. Without, you, you don't have to believe in it, they just want to do it. You could never get the whole, anybody, the world to believe in it anyway, but you can still produce the effect. Wow. So it could be like a Philip K. Dick sci-fi world where there are pods of meditators around the world to ensure that each community has a sustainable level of serenity that they're connected to. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it sounds funny, but the fact of the matter is it would be nice. To, you could even say like a lighthouse, like you've got, you know, it's going back to that Kali Yuga thing. It's night, it's dark. And people are smashing into each other and there's all these problems and problems and problems and problems. And this is, again, an ancient principle, the second element. You have darkness and you can, where did the darkness come from? Who's to blame? Let's set up, let's set up committees. Let's have boards. Where did it come from? And then someone comes along and says, well, here's, here's a switch. Let's just turn on the light and the darkness disappears. Turns out darkness is just the absence of light. It has no reality on its own in this model. So yes, in a very dark time when people are, um, don't know, they're not using the full creative potential of the brain. They're sort of kicking around and smashing into each other that if you had in society, some like lighthouses, it could help. It could help. In, in a world where people are sort of bludgeoned by materialism and, and well, let's say empiricism, the, uh, the idea that people meditating or a percentage of the population frequently meditating in union could have a meaningful tangible effect on like you said stress markers seems absurd until you consider the limitations the sensory lim the limits of the senses uh, someone explained to me that we only see 0.2 percent of the available light range that they're now developing ways of seeing electromagnetic lights and and what about neutrinos someone explained to me like that, that they're also incon inconceivably small when you were talking about that ocean earlier bob and the 50 foot waves and at the level of the absolute you know in the, the profound level of the ocean it would remain undisturbed i also thought on the sub-molecular level regardless of whether or not they were 50 foot waves or completely still the water would still be the same on a molecular level and i suppose what the the leap of faith that we are invited to undertake if we are to live a spiritual life which isn't a word i hear you use that often thinking about it is uh, what is the unseen world can the unseen world influence the markers that we have come become so devoted to the world of categories and taxonomies the world of hierarchies and visible dominance can we get beyond it particularly as we begin to understand through science the limitations of what can be seen and what can be measured well first of all human perception the, the um 
we see our life, as you just said, through this very narrow prism of waking state of consciousness. You know, I'm asleep and I'm dreaming and now I'm awake and this is reality and this is my world. And then, of course, we know that my world is influenced if I didn't sleep well or if I ate terrible food or if somebody was uh, bitchy to me or something and then it activates my uh, amygdala. So what I know to be real is when I'm stressed, it's very narrow and I don't trust you, but then you know people and we're around enough people that there's rare souls that are sort of comfortable in themselves, fine in themselves. They're not object referral. I know myself in terms of everybody else's appreciation. That's been a journey you've been on. We've talked about that over the years and I'm more self-referral. I know myself. Then those perceptions of differences and dualities and, and, fighting and the whole history of, uh, began to dissipate. So I'm not exactly answering your question yet, but I do want to make the point that there's a range of human nature that if you had more people doing things like transcendental meditation and other work, it's not just a standalone and other work, you're going to see a change in society. You're going to see it as society becomes less stress, less, less trauma. You're going to definitely see that. Do these deeper realms of uh, the world of, of creation influence uh, how we behave? I think, I mean, if you're looking at, you're driving in certain areas of a city and there's been a lot of violence in that city, you can feel the tension and you drive in other areas of the country and you feel relaxed. So I think collective consciousness does have a huge effect on the way we behave. Yeah, and like a somewhat anecdotally, but I think there is data on like that when there's a high profile boxing match or UFC tournament, I, the incidences of violence and that in and a A and E cases goes up, and like that someone told me um, that when there's a an event of global significance, there is like re they can register spikes in a random, uh, a sort of a like the, this guy Paul McKenna, wonderful fella. In fact, explained to me once that there's like, these machines that are sort of like random code generators. As they said it's like if you can to simplify it, imagine a machine continually flipping a coin, heads tails, tails heads tails, tails 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 heads heads tails tails. You know, he said that when there's an event of mass consciousness, they these machines respond like that when there's a 9-11 or a death of diana and likely a coronavirus there's a sort of a some sort of invisible wave travels through us and on a more profane and, and, and literary if not literal level the existence of mythology the existence of archetypes the existence of stories that resonate even the existence of any kind of popular culture suggests that on some level we are able to read similar experiences from external information and even more so even though like it, it, at least academically people are reluctant to assume that there is such a thing as the universal it's you know we accept that we're all basically made of carbon we accept that we've all basically got heart lung kidneys 10 fingers 10 toes i mean like on a readable tangible material level there seems to be universal imprints with myriad variations within them and the idea that that sort of that there are strata that increase that, that the deeper you go become more and more unified for me seems plausible and also but given that 
it's uh, correlative to the idea that we should live peacefully, harmoniously, and at one with one another, respecting our individuality and difference. Doesn't seem like a toxic idea. When I've spoken to people that are opposed to these ideas, they say, yeah, but what happens is, is one person's universal, gets imposed as the right, and like is a Christian, white, male version of what's right. And I think, no, we can't just dissect our way out of utopia by focusing on that. Yeah, um, there was no question there, Bob. I accept. No, no but I and I and I'm going to respond to that lack of a question because people will say to me, "Well, I don't believe, um, you know, I I I don't believe that what you're talking about those groups, large groups of people meditating, or just people meditating in society individually, not even as a group. More people meditating would have a, an effect in it across the board." And I always say, "Well, um, you have faith in." the defense industry, you have faith in political negotiations, you have a faith in uh, uh, economic embargoes. What, what exactly is the path forward? And the fact is today we do need military, we do need these things, but what we're missing is a, a technology of consciousness that can actually transform the quality of an individual's life and, and society as a whole. And if you want to say, well, everybody is, um, you know, it's just, hum I remember I was uh, a reporter from the Agence France Press was interviewing Maharishi and he said, you know, Maharishi, it's just you, too much, too, your claims are too, it was very respectful and they really enjoyed each other, but he said, you know, you should dial this down about the power of meditation to be able to change society. He said, violence has been in society, in the world forever. And, you know, how can you say something could change quickly? And Maharshi gave the example. He said, you could have a room that's been dark for one night. And you could have another room that's been dark for 100 years. And you walk into both rooms and you turn on a flashlight and the darkness disappears just as quick. It's not like the one that's been dark for 100 years. It takes an extra five seconds <laughs> so if you if if here's the big if if there is in fact this field that lies within everyone beyond philosophy all that stuff it's there and the wise have talked about it forever if it's there could be there and if you could access that through meditation through transcending then consider the possible ramifications from healing of trauma. As you know, we work with veterans and women, women who are survivors of domestic violence and veterans and their families with PTSD and children in the toughest schools in the most violent communities around the world. And their lives, the, the trauma is healed, the neural pathways are rebooted, the cortisol levels go down, they start doing better in school. And they're, I know this is going to sound strange, they're happier within themselves. Well, that's just small numbers of people. What, what if this was part of the educational system? What if, what if this was part of growing up, you were given tools to access that? You, you could create a, a, a new world that wouldn't be just limited, oh, I'm a baby boomer and this will never happen. Next generation, it's just too bad. You're just going to be stuck with what we're giving you. I think that's crazy. I think that's ignorant. I think we need to give our children tools to wake up those networks in the brain and let them create the better world. You think that is that part, is that part of your plan and what you want for the world to see meditation, specifically transcendental meditation, introduced into institutions? 
Uh, someone one time asked me, if they, did I want everyone in the world to meditate? And I said, that would be very presumptuous of me. I would, however, like everyone to know about it. I'd like everyone to know, you know, and know what it is. I'd like everyone to have access to it. I don't want, it's a nonprofit organization and there is a course fee. We're getting it down, but I would like there to be no obstacle for financing of it. I'd like there to be no obstacle for access. Sometimes you're a single mom and you can't go away for four days across town. Okay. Or a, someone who's working it, offer it in. I'd like people to have access to it if they want to do it. That's up to them. But I would like, there's so much availability and about pharmaceuticals. Every day, at least in the US, you turn on the morning news and it's just one drug after the other and one drug after the other. And people think, oh, if I'm anxious, I have to take this medicine. Or if I'm depressed, I have to take this medicine. And I'm nothing against medicines. They help some people. But they should also have access to Transcendental Meditation and Russell, other tools that have been shown to be effective. Yeah, we need to expand our, our definition of what a medical intervention is. Is it just a medicine or surgery? Or is it some of these integrative medicine techniques, integrative techniques that can calm the body without drugs, that can wake up the networks in the brain without drugs? So that's my answer to your question. What do you think the resistance is at an individual level, cultural level, social level? Why is there resistance? Why is it that everyone's not meditating? Well, there's that great line, you've heard it, uh, science progresses one funeral at a time. <laughs> and so there's people who hold on to the old ways. I, I've been meditating for 50, almost 51 years. I started when I was 83, so plus 51. You're very funny. <laughs> Not really. Um, don't, don't quit my day job. Um, I, 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 in the old days, you didn't even want to say the word meditation in public. I remember I was at... A, TM teacher at the age of 22, and my friends of my parents would say, oh, uh, to my mom, Sue, what's your son Bobby doing? And they'd say, teaching meditation, teaching meditation. You didn't want to say the word. And now it's much more widespread. It's much more accessible and available. And I think within five or 10 years, I think with a new generation that doesn't have that bias, that doesn't want to inherit the same old narrow, limited bandwidth that my generation or previous generation is sort of forcing force feeding people i think it's all going to change you got a podcast don't you and a radio show what are they i, I have a uh uh i heard radio approach me to do a podcast called stay calm which is quite ironic because i'm very energetic but it's called stay calm and it, I tell stories. I actually want to tell a story about my time with Russell. It's about eight minutes, and I tell a story about teaching this little kid who was um, on the autism spectrum disorder, who was nonverbal, and how he, when he first started to learn to meditate, he was so anxious he couldn't sit for more than a half a minute. And now he's been doing it for 10 years and how it's changed his life. And then give some tips about what science says, how to live a half healthier life. And then it ends with a few seconds of just sort of quiet time, gratitude. And so they, I didn't know what was happening, but it's five days a week, like forever. And it's, uh, it's available on Apple podcast and uh, um, I heard radio and others. It's free, but mm -hmm. yeah, it's called stay calm with Bob Roth. Stay calm with Bob Roth. Do you do, you do your serious radio show still? I, that yes, I have this, but that's on a hiatus until this is done because Sirius and 
iHeart are not best of friends. I get it, Bob. You're straddling the divide with the unified field. Oh, you're all just manifestations of the oneness. <laughs> a... they, did, they didn't buy it. The one thing <laughs> I would say, I do want to say on that point is, when you are settled in yourself or established in that field, you actually appreciate the differences more. You, you enjoy the differences. It becomes, you know, they call it a Leela. The whole thing is a divine dance. You, you don't feel threatened by differences. And the other people don't feel threatened by differences. So, you know, life can be this great display of diversity when you're anchored in, in, and settled and centered in yourself. Otherwise, it's a big threat. Well, um, yes, I remember David Lynch once saying to me, if you meditate your masturbation will be even better. <laughs> I was waiting for that recollection, Russell. I was... He found my sweet spot. <laughs> I was waiting for that recollection. Now, I would like to tell people, the foundation started in 2005, and other than David Lynch himself, Russell Brand has done more over these years to support the work of the foundation, to raise funds, to uh, bring the meditation to people suffering substance use disorder, people, inner city school kids, you went with us to, um, this is a great story. You we may not, do I have time to? Yeah, say what you want. Okay. So we're in San Francisco at the San Francisco public schools. And we'd had a program there with about, I don't know, 12,000 kids had learned TM as part of a quiet time program and a big study and hugely successful graduation rates went up and suspensions down. So anyway, I asked Russell and David Lynch to come and talk to a, uh, an assembly of a thousand kids who are all meditating together. And um, it was all well behaved. The San Francisco Chronicle was there, it was great. And then Russell got up to speak and Russell dropped the F word. I just have to say it this way, because the F word. And the superintendent of the schools leaned over to me and said, could you please ask Russell not to say that again? And I said to him, I said, you don't want me to ask Russell not to say the F word. He said, no, 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 you have to. I said, I'm telling you. He said, do it. So I whisked, walked over to Russell. When you're in the middle of whatever you're doing, he said, the superintendent would like you to not use the F word. And Russell said like 10 times in a row. So that is our Russell brand. But I, I diverge. You've been a great, a great friend of the David Lynch Foundation. And we have brought it to a million people. And Russell, you're for free, million kids and and you've had a huge role in making that happen. Thank you, Bobby. Whether it's swearing in front of children or masturbating alone. <laughs> it's, all in the, it's all in the unified field of Russell Brand. And just for the record, I don't masturbate anymore. Isn't that wonderful? And why is that? Well, I suppose... Seriously, seriously, seriously. Well, what happened, Bob, is that because of my 12-step journey, part of which is step 11, we sought through prayer and meditation to have closer conscious contact with a God of our own understanding. Through continuing prayer and meditation, I was able to obviously first recognize, but then act upon my understanding that, oh, this doesn't work for me this isn't what i want you know that dude michael singer who wrote untethered soul came on our podcast and he said like that you know looking at pornography it's an attempt to open a channel like a, like through pleasure seeking you're looking to open a channel to this in their language bliss and one of the things i've always enjoyed when you talk about the maharishi is that it's not a kind of stoic um a sort of post-protestant 
version of the holy where it's like look just accept life is suffering then you're going to die but it's like there's this beauty there's this beauty and indeed bliss there is this bliss you know the Maharishi used that word a lot isn't it Bob and and you know, like that, that whether it's taking drugs or looking at porn or eating too much food or looking for other people's approval, or craving success, well, all things that I'm still prey to occasionally, uh, I, I would willingly forego them if I can access a deeper, more substantial, permanent state of uh, joy and connection without doing those things. And as time has gone by, very, very slowly in my case, I'm a slow learner, I've, one by one, these behaviors have fallen away. No, I, I don't think you're a slow learner. I think what you your path has been <laughs> extraordinary. What you have, um, what you've subjected yourself to the 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 op- temptations, all the different things that have come your way. The fact that you through all of this, this is why I appreciate you so much. Through all of this, truth has been overriding, and it has you know allowed you to sort of free yourself. These things that sort of like almost like parasites, just sort of pulling on to you, and you 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 you're moving past it. And it's uh, when I taught Russell to meditate, I remember we we're in Fairfield, Iowa, and I, um, we've had some, many different experiences along the way, but I remember looking over at you, you were doing a meditation. I just opened my eyes to see, you know, how you're doing. And a thought came to me, you, this guy, this guy could be a real leader of, of his generation of society because of your um, power and, but you're seeking for truth and your ability to communicate honestly. And the other story of Russell that I want to share, the first time I met Russell was at a noisy hotel in New York City. And um, I said, I told a friend of mine, Heather Hartnett, I said, I'm going to talk to Russell Brand. He's he's interested in learning to meditate. He's doing a documentary on happiness. And she said, I love Russell Brand, but just be careful because that he's going to take you seriously because he's a very funny guy. He just take you seriously. And um, I saw you in the in the lobby or the bar or wherever it was and um i said so are you interested in learning to meditate and you said yes and then i said well do you have the time to learn and russell's eyes got a little moist there and he looked at me said i've been searching for the timeless my whole life i have as much time as you'll give me and that was the moment that is you know in terms of friendship and surrender it's like i've been you know i've been had that connection with russell from that moment on and you've always been that way well thank you bobby roth that's a lovely story to recount in a recorded format and i'm very grateful to you as a teacher and as a friend and for giving me the gift of the limitless the timeless the transcendent and for continuing to passionately espouse its benefits and to be devoted it seems without real expectation although you are a man who can be a bit frantic backstage at live events that's the only that's the only criticism i would level at you <laughs> no, no no there was what i got to tell this other story so we are doing our first event you can cut this out if you want but we're doing this first big event for for the David Lynch Foundation at, with the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And um, uh, there's 700 people, very influential people, because we're going to try and fund. We wanted to teach a million kids to meditate for free. And, you know, it costs money to pay teachers to do it. And it's not like you just teach them a breathing technique. These teachers become their mentors for life. And so Russell was going to be the main guy. And we're starting and everybody's there. And uh, the voice comes over and says, please welcome Russell Brand. Nothing. 
please welcome Russell Brent, nothing. And then I freaking out in my meditative freaking out, go running around and Russell is in the bathroom. What were you like hyperventilating or eating banana or something like that? You were getting ready to go out there. And I said, <laughs> Russell, Russell. <laughs> and then you get and there. It was that the audience was sort of what's going on. It's the first time they've been. And then you came out and just like brought him in. It was great. But uh, that was a traumatic experience for which I, I need another hundred years of meditating. Well, you always seem to be on the brink of that kind of franticness whenever there's an audience assembled. Bobby, I'm very grateful to you for your teaching and for your time. Is, it, is there anything else that you want to mention? We've talked about the podcast. We've talked about the work you're doing. Is there anything else you want to mention before we wrap up? Uh, no, Russell, you're, you're great. I appreciate, I appreciate you a lot. I appreciate Laura. I appreciate your kids. I appreciate the way you live your life. I appreciate this podcast you're doing. I appreciate you a lot. Cheers, Bobby Ruff. I love you, mate. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Bob Roth. I did. I always find him illuminating. I like to hear people that have got sort of theological, scriptural knowledge allied with neuroscientific information and that will actually teach you to meditate. If you're not meditating yet, start meditating. I personally use Transcendental Meditation and love the David Lynch Foundation, but I'm doing a little bit of stuff with Insight Timer at the moment. Pretty bloody good app. You might want to give them a little looking at Thanks for listening to uh, Bob Roth on Under the Skin there. Check me out on all of those social media things. And if you want to listen to some old stuff, some previous stuff, some sexy stuff, why not try Andy Puddicombe from Headspace? Brilliant uh, interview that was. Or Sharon Salzberg, the Buddhist teacher. Or Deepak Chopra, who you know already because he's Deepak Chopra. And uh, keep looking at the YouTube for the uh, videos. All right, I love you. Thanks for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary.